0: This podcast is a presentation of uctv.tv, University of California Television. Like what you learn, help others discover uctv podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Our next speaker is Dr. Nora Terro. She's professor of medicine and hepatologist extraordinaire. Now, if I was introducing uh, the topic of uh, Dr. Terro like 8 years ago, Hepsi Kidney for All you would have thought, well, Flavio must have visited more than one winery before coming to this meeting. But this is what has happened to the field of Hep C. So it's a new day. All right. Great. Thank you very much, Flavio. And um, it's really a pleasure to be here. And um, this may be the last time you hear about Hepatitis C, actually. Um, It's a pretty cool area right now um, for a couple of reasons. Um, Obviously, You know, there's been a tremendous uh, growth in the um, availability of new therapies for hepatitis C. But also we have this kind of very new agenda in terms of how we're going to use HCV donors. And so I wanted to share that with you today. But I'm going to start by um, first... If I could just... How do I advance? Okay, great. So... I'm going to give you just a little bit of the initial history that you're all very familiar with and really provides a justification for how we think about hepatitis C currently. Um, So whether you have hepatitis C or not impacts your long-term survival if you're a hemodialysis patient. It also impacts your survival if you're a non-dialysis patient, meaning you've had a a kidney transplant. So this is just one such study. It's an older study, but the, the data still holds true in that... Um, individuals who um, are on dialysis, that they have about a, a 60% higher mortality if they have hepatitis C than if they do not. And if we move to the kidney transplant group, um, this is a, a very nice study looking at patients um, who, uh, in which kidneys that were HCV, kidneys were given to either an HCV positive or an HCV negative recipient, and then they compared the outcomes. These were matched kidneys and um, shows very nicely that if you had hepatitis C in the recipient and you had a kidney, that individual had about a 25% higher graft in patient uh, mortality. So both on dialysis as well as after transplantation, individuals with hepatitis C have uh, Im- impacted survival. And in addition, we all know that there is a glomerulonephritis associated with hepatitis C uh, related to cryoglobulins, and that can be both a reason to come to hemodialysis and, and stage renal disease, but also can recur after transplant and be a cause for graft loss. So it, both before and after transplant, this HCV-associated glomerulonephritis is certainly one that has caused some issues uh, for patients. So lots of reasons for us to think about treatment. So the direct-acting antivirals, which now are standard, uh, as short as five years ago were still really new, and especially for the dialysis patients, was still um, kind of out of reach. Because while the vast majority of patients very quickly got access to drugs, and were, we were claiming 95% success rate, the end-stage renal disease patients were the last ones really to get an effective therapy. And the reason for that is that one of the key drugs that was first on the market and that really sort of set the stage for a cure is Sovospivir. And savosphere was contraindicated in patients who had a a creatinine clearance less than 30. So for for several years, while therapies were really transforming HCV patients across many different uh, um, settings, the end-stage renal disease patient really was the last to see the benefits. But their day has arrived, and in the last year or two, we now have a direct-acting antiviral, which is effective for the end-stage renal disease patient, too. And they now can claim 95% success. They have a simple regimen. It's usually one pill a day for 12 weeks. Side effects are minimal. And there's very little in the way of drug-drug interactions to manage. So the two therapies for end-stage renal disease patients are albosvir, grisoprivir. But it's only approved for genotype 1 and 4. And that was sort of the first one that we had available. But the real game changer is Glucopervib aprentisphere, or GP is our short term for that. And why this treatment is so important is that it's pangenotypic, which means that it it works across every genotype. So basically, any patient with end-stage renal disease can be treated with this combination. And you can see these are the so-called SVR rates, which are the cure rates. So you can see that the success with these therapies is extraordinarily high, that 95 to 100% of patients will achieve cure with these drugs. Now, the kidney transplant patients have, have, have it even better in the sense that we have had many more drugs to work with in the transplant population for a longer period of time. Uh, this is just a study that shows the, the drug combinations are at the top in different colors. And the point in showing this is really to say we just have many more to work with because after transplant, their renal function is restored. So we can then use psilocybin-based therapies as well. So that opens up a whole... Um, an additional group of drugs that we can choose from. Uh, the other thing you can see from this um, uh, graphic is that really, across many studies, the success rate in curing patients after transplant is 100%. So, really, we don't even regard transplant as any kind of hindrance to getting cure in our patients anymore. It's actually very easy. There's no risk for rejection. Um, again, a very simple regimen. We don't need to use ribavirin anymore, and um, we have this high efficacy across a broad patient population. So whether it's the end-stage renal disease patient or the kidney transplant recipient, we really have availability of a therapy for all of those patient groups now. And this is a very recent publication just to point out that the survival benefits kind of are not surprising, (laughs) that if you're treated and you achieve cure, that your survival is improved, whether you get a transplant or not. So if you're on dialysis, you get cured, you have a better survival than someone who's not treated. And if you have a transplant and you're treated, not surprisingly, your outcome is better than if you're untreated. So the message is that we should treat. (laughs) So not surprising. Um, As we do in every ACV patient, we sort of advocate for treatment of all patients. And these are two patient groups where clearly there's a survival benefit in both sides, the end-stage real disease, and the kidney transplant. So now we've got the cure, um, and we can deliver it to basically any patient. But now there's a bit of a dilemma, actually, because now we have to think about, should we really treat before or after the kidney uh, kidney transplant for those that are on the wait list? So for those that are in dialysis and are not uh, candidates for kidney transplant, treat them, because their best opportunity for prolonged survival is with the uh, cure of their hepatitis C But for the patient that is on the uh, dialysis and also on the kidney transplant waiting list, then I think you have to be a lot more thoughtful about whether you're going to offer that patient treatment or not. And the reason for this is really related to one thing on my sort of list here. So the reasons to think about treating prior to the kidney transplant is, one, you'll prevent their liver disease from progressing. You'll reduce their mortality while on dialysis because I just showed you that there is a mortality risk. You might prevent extrapatic complications, cryoglobin being one of them, but there could be others like diabetes. Um, and of, of course, if you cure someone before their kidney transplant, then you don't have to worry about hepsi after. So that obviously simplifies the management. But on the flip side, we're leaning more and more towards treating after kidney transplant, primarily because um, of one thing, and it's at the bottom, which is that we want the opportunity to be able to give uh, the recipients an anti-HCV-positive donor. So there's a lot of literature, and I'm going to share with you, that if you have an HCV-positive person on the waiting list, giving them an organ that's HCV-infected does not at all um, change their uh, post-kidney transplant outcomes. Um, In fact, there are data to say they're improved. Um, And the most important thing, of course, is it substantially reduces their waiting time. And I'm sure you know this, and it's, I, I'm just sharing it. It's not data that I look at every day, but um, it's good to remind ourselves that at UCSF, the waiting time for kidneys on average is uh, like five years, and obviously a big spread there in contrast to the rest of the, the country where it's uh, much less, two years. So in particular, I think at UCSF and in California, there's a big interest in how do we shorten that waiting time, and that's why um, considering the use of HCV-positive donors, and then how we think about the recipients is really important in that regard. So let me sort of start by saying our goal here is now to try to think about how to utilize HCV-positive kidneys. And our first step is to think about using patients who are HCV-infected. So the current waiting list is long. You all know this. There's a risk of dying on the wait list There's consequences of being on the waiting list for a long time. So clearly there's a lot of reasons for us to think about trying to shorten the wait times. So here's just a little bit of data to show that the wait times are shorter in patients who are HCV positive who take an HCV positive allograph. And there's, I mean, there's a lot of data here, but the recipient positive, donor positive, is a recipient who had Hep C, who took a donor that has HCV, and you can see they're compared to individuals who were recipients were positive for hep C, who waited for an HCV-negative donor, or a, a negative recipient and negative, a negative donor. And you can see that the shortest waiting time is in the recipient who's positive and took an HCV-positive uh, donor, and it's reduced by about a half. And that's true no matter which group we look at. So Certainly, we have very good data that says if you are HCV positive and you take an HCV positive donor, you're going to reduce your wait time by about 50 percent. At least this is sort of U.S. data. And the graft survival is actually improved in these patients as well. So this is very recent data, and it shows the graft survival again by the donor and recipient pairs. And you can see graph survival is actually best for the recipient who's positive who takes a donor that's positive. Um, In terms of patient survival, there's an advantage over the recipient who's positive who takes a negative donor, but no difference between the negative negative. But the message is that there's certainly no disadvantage to that patient who's HCV positive who took an HCV-positive donor. So I think that at UCSF, we have for some time uh, tried to dissuade, (laughs) at least the patient comes to me, if they're on the waiting list for kidney transplant um, and they're HCV infected, our recommendation has been don't treat them because we want to make them eligible for the HCV positive donors. And with that, I certainly have seen patients that have gone from waiting times of, on average, five to seven years to be less than a year. So our recommendation generally when patients come to us first is don't treat the patient who's on the waiting list who is HCV infected. But I'm going to say that the opportunity to use HCV positive donors now is going to outstrip the number of recipients who are HCV positive. So if we're only going to pair positive donors with positive recipients, we're very quickly going to run out of positive recipients, especially since recipients are increasingly treated. And what's interesting is we now have even more HCV-positive donors than ever related to the opioid epidemic. So unfortunately, it's sort of the silver lining in a very sort of tragic problem in the United States is that there's a lot of overdoses, and a lot of those overdoses um, include individuals who are recently HCV-infected. So the number of HCV-positive donors is increasing. It's about twofold higher just in the last three years. It does vary by region. I'll show you a graphic of that. But I think there still is kind of a reluctance in using these HCV-positive kidneys. And in some cases, it's also maybe a a lack of available HCV-positive recipients. And so really, I'm going to sort of share with you my thinking about sort of and our thinking at UCSF in terms of where we should go with this next. Just a little bit of data about these HCV-positive donors that we're seeing in 2018. So this is, on the left, age-adjusted opioid overdoses. The Appalachian region has been all over the news. Um, very, very high rates of death there. But actually, I just saw an updated um, regional map of, of deaths um, related to opioids. And actually, California now is sort of moved into the colors so every many states are seeing more HCV-positive donors driven by the opioid epidemic. And then on the right is where they're using these donors at, at high rates. And certainly Appalachia, which is where most of those donors have been, it's been the hot spot, the transplant programs around that area have been using these HCV-positive donors. And so it's really, I think, sort of created some momentum for us to think about how to use them. Um, This is just to show uh, there is geographic differences. This is, again, reflecting where the deaths are occurring um, and where opioid use is occurring. And just to highlight Region 5, which is our region, we're sort of in the middle of the pack. Interestingly, the opioid epidemic is quite different in California than it is in Appalachia, just because of the nature of heroin in California versus there but there's no doubt that we're seeing more deaths related to opioid overdoses um, in this state as well and surrounding states from which organs can be drawn. Oops, sorry. Nope. Okay. The other interesting thing about these uh, donors when we look over the last several years is that they're young donors, not surprisingly. So who where's the opioid epidemic? It's in the young sort of 20 to 40-year-olds. So what that means is not only are these, uh, we're seeing more donors, but we're seeing more young donors. Um, and you can see here that the, the median age has, has fallen, and it's fallen very precipitously since about 2012. So aside from having probably recently acquired HCV and potentially other viruses for, for that matter, these are otherwise typically young um, and otherwise healthy donors. So um, the group from um, Penn uh, did a pilot study called the THINKER trial. So they went one step further than the putting the HCV-positive uh, donor into an HCV-positive recipient. What they did was they put HCV-positive donors into HCV-negative recipients. And uh, this was an open-label uh, study on, in renal transplants. They they studied 10 patients initially, and then they've done uh, more since then. Uh, because at the time, the, the one drug that was approved for, for renal patients was albosphere grasopavir, and that drug only works in genotype 1. They had a very complex structure of having to get the genotype of the donor before they could decide whether they could use the donor, and they only treated uh, took donors that were genotype 1. And then they preemptively gave the recipients treatment with Albosphere grasopavir, and I'll show you the results, which are, are, are quite excellent um, all of them had all of the recipients became infected, so they all had detectable hCVRNA by day three post transplant. All of them were treated with the antivirals for twelve weeks, and all of them were cured. There was one delayed graft function and three transient liver and en- en- enzyme abnormalities, but those were transient um, and This is maybe a bit difficult to see, but I just wanted to highlight the donors again i I, I think what 's interesting about these donors is that they first of all. They're, they're definitely from certain regions and regions only. So this was there in their study. They were pulling in donors from a quite a wide region. They're young. That's what's sort of de- evident here. Um, and um, they also, you can see from the mechanism of death, most of them are drug overdoses. So that's what we would expect. That's the characteristics of the donors we're going to see. And here's the HCV RNA results. So they track the HCV RNA results in the recipients over time. So really not surprisingly, because um, they they were given an infected kidney, is the virus was detectable in the blood very early, within a few days. But then you can see they started on treatment, and the viral loads all went down in a very consistent fashion, fashion and all of them, as I mentioned before, um, ultimately were cured. This is data that I showed on the renal function, and they're comparing it to optimal and allocation uh, uh, KDPI comparators, and the message here is that the renal function of these uh, kidneys from the HCB positive donors uh, was excellent at least at six months. So these preliminary data have prompted us um, at UCSF to consider doing something um, similar. We have a I think, a better title. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's called the PROAC study, which is the prevention of de novo HCV with antiviral HCV therapy post-liver and kidney transplant. So we're doing this in both our liver and our kidney recipients. Here I'm just showing a kidney recipient. So the idea is we're going to take these donors that are HCV RNA positive, so we, they're NAT positive, meaning they're confirmed to be viremic, and we're going to, get, we're going to give them to uninfected HCV, HCV negative recipients. Now, guaranteed, pretty much, is they're going to become infected. So you see my little green virus there. So we know that we're going to give them infection, but similar to what was done in the THINKER trial, we're going to plan to initiate uh, antiviral therapy somewhere between day 3 to 5. It could be earlier if they're stable, certainly before they're discharged from, dish- from hospital. And we're going to use a, a different combination called subospovir valpatosphere, And the reason that this is important is that that combination is pan-genotypic. So I don't need to know the donor's genotype. We can take any donor, basically, because this drug works against all types of hepatitis C. And so all these patients, we would treat it for 12 weeks with this combination, and uh, we're hoping to get similar results uh, to that which was seen in the Thinker trial. And the, the key inclusion criteria, just to give you a sense of what we have, we're being quite conservative, I think, Uh, First of all, um, the recipient, the kidney recipient, has to be somebody who's listed for kidney transplant for less than five years. Um, The idea being that people who've on the list for longer than that are going to get a transplant. Um, No available living donor and a a PRA that's less than um, 95%. We're not going to include HIV-infected individuals. This protocol is not for the HCV-positive recipient, you know, those we do kind of routinely, and they can't have hep B. The important thing is actually, they can't have um, kind of pre existing chronic liver disease. We know there's a lot of fatty liver around liver disease, so we're not worried about that. But they can't, for example, have you know, advanced liver disease um, because we would worry that if they get hep C, that actually could lead to progressive liver disease. So we're planning to evaluate these individuals um, using elastography, which is a non invasive method, or if they happen to have a biopsy, that would be fine too. But the idea is that we're not going to give HCV positive. Uh, do, um, organs to somebody who has underlying liver disease. Um, we're also, in terms of the donor criteria, of course, they're viremic donors. Um, we're choosing kidneys which really I think are um, otherwise aside from the hepatitis C generally um, quite healthy. Um, they can't be HIV or HBV infected. And and always our surgeons are the sort of the final gatekeeper on whether to use the kidney. And so obviously if they feel that the kidney is not a good choice then we, we will not use it. So that's just to give you a flavor of kind of where hep C has gone. It's gone from something so difficult to treat in our end-stage renal disease and kidney transplant patients to something very easy to treat, so much so that we feel very confident about actually giving HCV to transplant recipients and, well, not really comfortable, but pretty comfortable doing that, and, and with our ability to cure, just that, that concept. So this is just a summary to sort of say, how I feel we, where we are right now. Um, so for non-kidney transplant patients um, who are on dialysis and have hep C, treat them. This is, there's clearly a treatment benefit to do that. Um, for the candidate um, who's on the waiting list who has advanced liver disease, that's also a scenario where sometimes we would do treatment on the waiting list with the idea that we want to stabilize their cirrhosis so that they can avoid having to need a combined kidney-liver transplant So if there's any suggestion that they may have early portal hypertension, for example, we would treat them to stabilize and allow them to be a kidney-only recipient. Uh, But for the kidney transplant candidate on the wait list without cirrhosis, um, I'd say deferring treatment until after kidney transplant makes sense. Again, it opens up the door for that individual to get an HCV-positive kidney. And remember, we've got actually a lot of data in that scenario about the success of that outcome. Um, and I think increasingly what we're recommending in patients who have received an acb positive kidney or who just have hepatitis C is that generally we're starting to treat them earlier and earlier after transplant because we're less worried now, in fact not worried, about um, any uh, complications of rejection. In the past when we had interferon-based therapy, that was a big concern. But now with DAA therapy, that's not necessary. Um, Just a few comments about the treatment of HCV and kidney transplant recipients. So there's actually still a lot of kidney transplant patients out there that got transplanted over the last decade or so who still have HCV. So I'm sort of making a a plea, I think, really to say we've got good treatments. Um, All those patients should be offered treatment. We can cure them and very easy therapies um, so, really, to look for HCV, make sure that we're identifying those that are still infected and ensuring we're getting them um, the treatment that they need. Um, and then, as I said, now with current kidney transplants, our strategy is to try to treat them early. Uh, typically, in our program, they refer them to us for treatment after they do their six month post kidney transplant biopsy. If that looks good, then usually we get the referral. So, this kind of concept that we're moving to earlier and earlier treatments also occurring. And then just to leave you with the final kind of be on the lookout for this study, PROACT, um, uh, about this idea of of using HCV-positive organs in HCV-negative kidney transplant recipients as well, this being our our strategy to try to reduce the waiting times for our patients at UCSF. Thanks very much. Questions? do to recipient. Is this genotype specific? Not anymore. So in the past, we used to limit our um, recipients um, to those that had the more favorable genotype for treatment. But now, regardless of your genotype, we have equal success in treating and curing. So that 95% cure rate is equal for genotypes 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, or 6. So we don't have to do any genotype restriction anymore. I'm going to make a prediction that <laughs> this isn't the last time we're going to hear about hep C from you. Because I think what's going to happen is this study and protocol is going to be a resounding success. And suddenly, the line for hepsi-positive mm-hmm. kidneys is going to be very long, right. and then the patients you're telling us not to treat now, who have known hepatitis C and the risk of progression while they aren't being treated, right. are now going to be waiting two, three, four years. And now you're going to come back and tell us to treat everybody. What do you think? I, I think that's a good point, and in fact um, it's only because of cost that I would say, you know, so we're trying to do one treatment because the, the treatment is still quite expensive. But if you're just thinking, what's the best thing for my patient, I would say you have a patient on the waiting list, treat them because you want to minimize any HCV related complications on the wait list and then make them eligible to get HCV again with their transplant and then treat them again. If they happen to get a hepatitis. that, that would be a good strategy for the patient. Um, it's a little tricky right now because the treatments are kind of expensive, and I think that that's maybe one small barrier. But I, actually, we've not had any insurers who've kind of held us back. We actually did this in a liver transplant patient where they were treated before because they had pretty advanced liver disease, and we're trying to keep them stable. And then they got a hep C positive a liver, and we treated them again, and they were cured. So I think that's really the only barrier. So you're, you're right. Um, if one wanted to really do the right thing for the patient, it might treat them twice. <laughs>